Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. Today, for this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you. One of them has been released in theaters. Actually, two of them have been released in theaters. Um, One of them has been simultaneously released in theaters and on streaming, and the other one was just on streaming. So, let's get to it. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Boss Baby, Family Business, which is a sequel to the 2017 hit film from DreamWorks Animation. This was released back in March of 2017. It had a budget of $125 million, which is quite high. And overall, it grossed $528 million worldwide. I do remember seeing this movie when it came out, but I did not particularly care for it. I believe when I had my knockout, checkout, strikeout, flunkout uh, system of rating movies, which I've had for the last five or six years or so. I don't remember exactly when I implemented it, but it was long before this radio show became a podcast. But I remember giving The Boss Baby a strikeout. I just thought it was very pandering and also not particularly funny. However, it did receive an an, uh, a nomination, I was going to say an animation, a nomination for Best Animated Feature at the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes. And that is really unfortunate because overall it was just not a good film. Now, just to give you an idea of what films it was up against, let me actually just go to that right now. It was up against uh, The Breadwinner, Loving Vincent, Ferdinand, and Coco. Ferdinand was the same kind of movie. It was appealing to kids, but I think it just added a little too much in there, pop culture references and also dangling keys for kids to enjoy. But The Boss Baby was not nearly up to par with the film that won, Coco. And for that matter, I did not think that The Boss Baby needed a sequel, but lo and behold, we have one for this July 4th weekend. It's very strange to me because next weekend, the highly anticipated Black Widow movie starring Scarlett Johansson is going to be released in theaters. I am so shocked that that movie was not released on the 4th of July weekend, but I'll be reviewing that film next week. Meanwhile, I'm just going to get into the sequel to The Boss Baby, The Boss Baby Family Business. And this takes place, I think, maybe 40 years after the original. I'm not sure exactly when, but the Templeton brothers, uh, to whom we're introduced in this film, have all uh, grown up. There was the older brother, um, Timothy, who as a child in the original film was was voiced by Miles Bakshi, but as an adult he was voiced by Tobey Maguire. In the Boss Baby family business, he is instead voiced by James Marsden. I don't know why Tobey Maguire didn't come back for this, but eh, not really any of my business. And the adult uh, Boss Baby, uh, Ted, is voiced by Alec, Alec Baldwin, both as an adult and as a child. Well, Tim Templeton 
is grown up with a family all his own, uh, including a lovely wife, Carol, who's voiced by Ava Longoria, uh, a, a daughter named Tabitha, who we're not sure what her age is. I guess given the fact that she's at a competitive school and she is a, a very good student, not to mention she's beginning to be embarrassed by her parents. She's probably about the age of 12 or 13, but in animation form, she looks like she's about six. But I don't think the movie ever revealed what her actual age is. She's voiced by an actress named Ariana Greenblatt, and the baby, Tina, uh, rather, Tim Templeton's youngest daughter, Tina, who is an infant, is voiced by Amy Sedaris because, as it turns out, Tina, just like her Uncle Ted, is a boss baby. And it's actually shocking and a little bit scary when Tina dresses up in a suit and begins speaking in adult vernacular to her father, and her father is very understandably shocked, as was I. Not to say that I didn't see that part coming. After all, it wouldn't be... A movie without another, or wouldn't be a sequel without another boss, maybe, especially when you're introducing a brand new family here. But again, I just thought the way they set that up was unnecessarily scary. But anyway, as the Templeton uh, brothers have become adults and drifted away from each other, a new boss baby, uh, the daughter Tina, with a cutting edge approach, is about to bring them together and inspire a new family business. Well, you would think that it would be a family business, but unfortunately, it's just another formulaic plot where the the kids or the the Templeton brothers, Tim and uh, and Alec Baldwin's character Ted, um, become babies again to infiltrate an evil CEO that's running the private school to which Tim's daughter Tabitha attends. And the the doctor who is running the school, who is looking to brainwash the adults and take over the world, is a baby who is masquerading as an adult with a PhD. He's known as Dr. Armstrong, and he's voiced by Jeff Goldblum. Although the character Dr. Armstrong, both in baby form and in the facade of an adult form to me looked like Randy Newman, but I I guess Jeff Goldblum's voice didn't quite fit there. I think actually an older uh, comedian like Mel Brooks, I think would have been great for this role. Jeff Goldblum, I think can be uh, good, but mainly he played this role kind of monotone, but in addition, but that's not my biggest problem with the film. My biggest problem with the film was it turned Alec Baldwin's character, Ted, who's a 40-something adult, I assume, and is very successful at business, back into a baby just to pander to people who like cute babies. And I didn't really buy that in particular. I think if you're going to make the Templeton brothers adults, you might as well keep them as adults. And just the reason they turned into kids, I think, was probably to sell toys. And of course, you know, Ted Templeton, Alec Baldwin's character is indeed a a cute baby, but that is probably my biggest problem with the film. In addition to the fact that 
the animation was way too manic. For instance, you have this baby who's known as Dr. Armstrong trying to take over the world, and he is eating gluttonous amounts of candy and drinking gluttonous amounts of soda to the point where you're thinking he's probably going to get adult onset diabetes, i.e. type two diabetes by the time he's five. I guess that was the point of the character, but again, he just, I I mean, it's, it's not just his character, but it's also the other characters are just moving way too quickly and way too swiftly. And as I was watching this film, I thought the animation is pretty good. It definitely doesn't hold up to the standards of Disney Pixar, and it especially doesn't hold up to the standards of DreamWorks films from 15 to 20 years ago, especially Shrek, which came out 20 years ago around this time, a couple of months earlier in May of 2001. Shrek was, it is an older film, obviously, but it was far better animated and also did not pander to its audience. And I feel like both Boss Baby movies and maybe the Netflix series that inspired the Boss Baby is doing just that. And I didn't buy the plot. I did find myself becoming a bit more intrigued at the idea of this father, Tim Templeton, trying to get closer to his daughter and understand her a little bit better by turning into a kid. But at the same time, I've seen that kind of plot element in various other films before. There are a lot of jokes that are thrown at you, and I did feel like, very much like the original Boss Baby film, I didn't find any of this movie particularly funny. I thought the visuals were way too manic. I thought that it was pandering to an audience of which I'm not a part. And I just didn't find very much of it particularly funny. Plus I found some of the more poignant sequences, probably as a direct result of the manic energy that this film displayed earlier not good enough to give this film enough heart um, for its its audience. And I, and I thought that while it didn't rip off the original so much in terms of story, I thought that the antagonist was a little bit too much like the character that Steve Buscemi played in the original film. And the, the idea of some evil genius trying to take over the world has been done so many times before. So the Boss Baby family business started out pretty good with introducing these characters that we knew as children in the original film and bringing them, you know, 30 to 40 years later as adults. I thought that it had a lot of potential without having these adults turn back into children by some cockamamie um form baby formula that they drink. And as I sat there watching this film, I wasn't buying any of it. I wasn't buying the humor. I chuckled a couple of times during it, but I just also didn't really get into the story. I thought, well, there's somebody who's looking to take over the world and brainwash people. 
I've seen it so many times before, which is why the boss baby family get business gets my rating of a flunk out. And I was teetering the line between giving it a flunk out, which is the, the worst rating on my, my rating system and giving it a strikeout, which means that it has way too many flaws to recommend. But I think it has too many flaws to be considered even a marginally good film. I suppose the animation is good, and it certainly was better than the Spirit movie that came out a couple of weeks ago. But again, it moved way too fast for me, and I think it's going to move way too fast for other kids too. I didn't particularly find it funny. And while I can't speak for everyone, even people my age or even people of other age demographics, I don't think kids will really be into this one too. Very much like Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum's evil genius character. I just thought it was way too much fast moving energy, way too much sugar and the sugar high that you might see vicariously through Jeff Goldblum's evil genius character, just like a regular sugar high, wears off considerably towards the end. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is No Sudden Move. And this is the latest film from director Steven Soderbergh, who who retired a little while ago, uh, back in 2013 when he um, directed the film Side Effects. But he came back and has directed at least one film every year since... 2017. The film I'm going to be reviewing for you is No Sudden Move, but before I get into that, let me just tell you his repertoire from 2017 to the the present. In 2017, he directed a really entertaining heist film called Logan Lucky. In 2018, he directed a very creative and very intriguing found footage film called Unsane. In 2019, he directed High Flying Bird and The Laundromat, both of which were Netflix originals. They didn't get a lot of critical praise, but still, to direct two movies in one year, that's quite impressive. Last year, he directed an HBO Max original called Let Them All Talk, which was an excellent film starring Meryl Streep, Diane Wiest, Candace Bergen, and Lucas Hedges. And this year, he directed No Sudden Move, So let me give you an idea of what No Sudden Move is about story-wise. It is about a group of criminals in 1954 Detroit who are brought together under mysterious circumstances and have to work together to uncover what's really going on when their simple job goes completely sideways. I do not think this is based on an original story. The writer of this film, both the story and the screenplay, is Ed Solomon, but it does intersect with historical fiction. It starts out with these three 
small-time criminals, Kurt Goines, who's played by Don Cheadle, Ronald Russo, who's played by Benicio Del Toro, and one more younger criminal by the name of Charlie, who's played by Kieran Culkin, all recruited by a guy by the name of Doug Jones, who's played, played by Brendan Fraser, to rob money from an organization at which a man by the name of Matt Wirtz, who's played by David Harbour, works. And they start out doing this robbery brilliantly, very nefariously, but brilliantly. And if you've ever seen one of my favorite heist films, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, they employ a robbery technique that is very similar to some of the bank robbers in that film. Without giving too much away, what Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, and Kieran Culkin's characters do is they go to the house of Matt Wirtz and they hold his family, which includes his wife, Mary Wirtz, played by Emmy Simons, and their two children, played by Noah Jupe, and another girl whose name I don't have right now. They hold them hostage at their house as Don Cheadle, uh, uh, actually, no, as Kieran Culkin's character accompanies David Harbour's character to his place of work in order to retrieve money. But as the seemingly perfect crime begins to get into place, Certain plot twists happen, which I will not give away, which leads viewers to believe that this is more than a film about a robbery. And it starts off with David Harbour's character going to his place of work, opening up the safe and realizing that all the money in the safe has been taken already. Why has it been taken already? And what does it mean when it's been taken? What did the person who took the money do with that money? Well, that's just the start of a very complicated string of events that I think this movie does very brilliantly. I mean, these three criminals played by Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, and Kieran Culkin are bad people, but you find yourself sort of rooting for them in a strange kind of way. Also, the person who recruits them, who's played by Brendan Fraser, is somebody we haven't seen on film in uh, quite some time. Brendan Fraser, for a number of years, maybe even a number of decades, has been a box office draw. And in this film, he looks particularly different. And that's not the only thing that's good about him, but Brendan Fraser is heavy in this film. And... It's not that he he personally has let himself go. It's actually for this film and for another film that Brendan Fraser is going to be releasing later this year that he has intentionally gained weight. So I am very curious to see that film. I'm not going to say whether it's good or not because I don't know how it's going to be, but I have the feeling that Brendan Fraser, after losing his status as a box office draw about 10 years ago, I feel like he's going to make a really big comeback. No pun intended. But 
Of course, we'll have to see. But either way, I think that Brendan Fraser's really good in this film, playing someone he usually doesn't play. Usually, Brendan Fraser is the strapping hero, particularly in movies like The Mummy and Journey to the Center of the Earth. But his days of being an action star in the same kind of realm as Dwayne Johnson or John Cena may be behind him, but a whole new chapter of his acting may be ahead of him right now. But if no sudden move is any indication, he's off to a really good start. Plus, his scenes with Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, and Kieran Culkin are really good at first. Um, And then things start to get sour. And I mean that in terms of story, not in terms of acting. Benicio Del Toro and Don Cheadle anchor this film very well and turn in some, and also support some great supporting performances by the likes of John Hamm, who plays the detective who is investigating the crimes in which their characters are involved. You also have Ray Liotta as a mafioso who is enters into the story. And I shouldn't mention one particular cameo, but I will say that he is someone who has been in several Steven Soderbergh movies. His appearance in this movie kind of feels like a cameo, but he also has a dynamic uh, part in this film. And it also becomes a movie that's a little bit more about, a little bit less about a robbery and a little bit more about the manufacturing of cars and how that was particularly controversial in the mid fifties, particularly amongst the rise of the environmental movement, particularly how Ralph Nader became a leading voice in the environmental movement. But again, that's just a hint at some of the plot twists that go on in this movie, but no sudden move is a really good dark thriller that's sometimes funny, never ceases to be thrilling or enticing, and it puts out great acting performances by just about everyone involved, plus the set design for mid-1950s Detroit is nothing short of amazing. So No Sudden Move, I think, is Steven Soderbergh's best film since he re-entered the realm of being a credible director back in 2017. So No Sudden Move gets my rating of a knockout. It is certainly worth seeing on the big screen, but unfortunately, a lot of people who have HBO Max can only see it on that streaming platform, and there's nothing wrong with that because it still is a good watch no matter what whether you see it on the big screen or on TV, I'm just one of those people who prefers to see movies on the big screen, but no sudden move is a really good heist thriller. And it also ties very well into historical fiction, especially as the movie progresses.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a documentary called Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. This is a fascinating documentary that has loads of very impressive stock footage of a of a um, music festival that took place in Harlem, New York during the summer of 1969. And that festival was the Harlem Culture Festival. And the Harlem Culture Festival, unlike Woodstock or Altamont Speedway or the festivals that you actually read about in history textbooks, did not take place over a single weekend. It actually took place throughout the summer of 1969. It started out on June 29th in not only Harlem, New York, but also uh, Harlem's Mount Morris Park. And every single event that was in the Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969 attracted 3,000 people, not surprisingly, most of whom, a vast majority of whom, were black. So the first um, concert of the Harlem Cultural Festival took place on June 29th, 1969, and the last one took place on August 24th. There was one concert that took place on the same weekend as Woodstock, and that featured Nina Simone as the headliner, B.B. King, Hugh Masakella, and the Harlem Festival Jazz Band. That was on Sunday, August 17th, and it probably explains why neither Nina Simone nor B.B. King performed at Woodstock, but... I suppose they could have if they had gone on the the Friday or Saturday of that weekend, August 15th through 16th, and they would have fit right in. But Summer of Soul, or rather the Harlem Culture Festival, attracted a lot of acts who didn't um, appear at Woodstock with one primary exception. But again... They were, it was popular music of the time, most of it, so they could have. But as I was watching this film, it tells you in the very beginning through subtitles that the Harlem Culture Festival film footage was put in a basement for 50 years, which leads me to wonder why? Why was it that, especially when you had films that were being made out of iconic 60s um, music festivals, not only Woodstock, but also the Monterey um, music festival that featured the Mamas and the Papas, Otis Redding, Jimi Hendrix, and other artists, and those are just to name a few, as well as the movie about the Altamont Freeway Rolling Stones concert that ended in tragedy with four people dying, um, being made into the really great music documentary, Gimme Shelter, how did some uh, the Harlem Culture Festival, despite being filmed, not make it into theaters until now? Well, the movie doesn't come out and tell you right off the bat, 
But it is directed by Questlove, who is the drummer for The Roots, which is also known as the Tonight Show house band. And Questlove's real name is Amir Thompson. And he has contributed soundtrack-wise to several movies and TV shows, not just uh, The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. But this is his first... Well, actually... um, Scratch that. This this is his first feature film documentary, but he's also credited as being the documentary of, uh, excuse me, the director of a documentary that came out in 1969 that was called Black Woodstock. And that's strange because Questlove was born in 1971, and that documentary, Black Woodstock, came out in 1969. So my guess is that it was probably put out there and it was shelved, but it was reworked into the the film that I am describing right now. But it is amazing to see how much live footage they were able to get from these series of concerts. And it's also amazing how great the music sounds and how not particularly dated any of it is. And it was a, a, an amalgamation of various genres of black music. There was rock music, there was R&B, soul music, as you might expect. There was jazz, blues, gospel, pop music. And I think that pretty much just about covers it. But all the music sounds particularly amazing. Some of it I was familiar with, some of it I wasn't. There's some great footage that I am amazed I never heard of or saw considering how much I love some of these acts. For instance, there's a scene uh, that takes place on July 20th, 1969, the same day as the moon landing, coincidentally enough. But what you see in this film uh, is probably as amazing, without building it up too much, although it might be a little bit too late for that, as the moon landing. And what I mean by that is you see Stevie Wonder playing the drums and you see Stevie wonder playing the drums really well. Now, having been a big Stevie wonder fan for over 20 years, I knew Stevie wonder could play the piano. I think everybody did. I knew Stevie wonder could play the harmonica. I never knew he could play the drums and could play them. Well, I didn't even think it was possible for Stevie wonder to play the drums. But lo and behold, you see him play the drums here, and it is amazing. You also see, at the same concert, on the same day, David Ruffin. Hang on a second. David Ruffin of The Temptations, who just recently broke with the band, performing solo for this audience. And he sings a rendition of My Girl, which admittedly has more soul than the song you hear on the radio, but he sings it incredibly well. Another group here who performed on June 29th, 1969, whose, whose performance that's shown in this film had me in complete awe was the fifth dimension. And the fifth dimension 
was described by the members of the group like Billy Davis or Marilyn McCoo as being champagne soul. They weren't definitely not the same kind of soul music that James Brown and Otis Redding sang, and they were considered more of adult contemporary music, especially with their songs like One Less Bell to Answer or Up, Up, and Away. But in this um, concert footage, they sing one of their more familiar songs, the hair medley of Age of Aquarius and Let the Sunshine In. This is a song I've heard dozens of times because growing up, I used to listen to the oldie station and I heard plenty of Fifth Dimension songs. But their performance of Age of Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In at this festival had the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. It was amazing how well they sang it in front of a live audience, how you couldn't just credit that song as being just something that the studio created with cutting the tape. It's it's incredible. And it almost felt like, even though it was a, a familiar song, it was a new experience hearing it. And you also hear from, oh my gosh, I mean, countless other acts, which makes this film, which is about two hours long, feel way too short. And I feel the exact same way about the Woodstock film as I do about Summer of Soul. This movie could have gone on for five or six hours, and provided that they gave me a break to go to the bathroom, I mean, if I saw this movie in theaters, and I didn't, I saw it on Hulu, because that's where it's streaming right now, I would still intently watch this film, because there... It has so much to love in, in this movie, if you, it, particularly if you're a fan of music. And I'm not just saying a fan of music created by African Americans, although there is plenty of that. The subtitle of this film, Summer of Soul, is Or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, which... First of all, it leads me to believe, why couldn't it have be, been televised? And secondly, it also makes me wonder, the, the subtitle of this film alludes to uh, a, a spoken word song, which is best known from the singer and poet Gil Scott Heron. And amazingly, Gil Scott Heron did not perform at any point at the Harlem Cultural Festival, at least not that I can see, but also particularly even more than the absence of Gil Scott Heron, when you read the title, the subtitle or the what revolution could not be televised, it makes you wonder why wasn't it televised? I, I don't exactly know, but the, but the movie very much like the Woodstock documentary, not only gives you the great performances on the stage, but it also gives you the story behind the performances by the people who watched it, who are still alive today, and also the people who performed in it, many of whom are still alive today. And it provides a lot of great insight, not only into the musical acts, but also the people who um, set the festival up, including the host of the festival, Tony Lawrence. Uh, and I, I could go on about how much this documentary gets right, but th the truth of the matter is it is 
a documentary that is well worth seeing. Why it took 52 whole years to give this movie a wide release, I don't exactly know, but kudos to Questlove for finding this um, found footage and putting it into a documentary that tells a story. Now, as I said, the Harlem uh, Cultural Festival took place over a period of Sundays in 1969. It wasn't just one weekend or one day, but Questlove is able to edit this film, not in chronological order, but I think that actually works for this um, documentary because he edits it so well so that the music is categorized as it's presented to you by genre as opposed to being chronological. And I think that works out actually really well. I think somebody could conceivably make another documentary that tells the story of the Harlem culture cultural festival chronologically. And it could also be good, but I liked what Questlove did. And also he has a wide array of interviewees to make this festival to emphasize the cultural significance of this festival without taking anything away from the other music festivals that made history in the sixties, especially Woodstock, especially Monterey pop and for better or for worse, the Altamont speedway festival that came after Woodstock that some people say ended the sixties and it did literally cause it took place in December of 1969, but also it did end the idealism of the sixties, but it's great to see a documentary like summer of soul that shows the idealism of the sixties without necessarily being about ending the Vietnam war or anything that you hear about the sixties, uh, to a certain extent, it shows the diversity and the, um, multiculturalism of pop music in that time period. And I think that's amazing. So summer of soul had me entranced at the performances, but also the retrospective history behind it, which is why summer of soul or when the revolution could not be televised gets my rating of a very enthusiastic knockout quest. Love did an amazing job directing this film particularly because he probably didn't have a ton of time to direct and supervise the editing of this film, particularly with his touring and also being the drummer for the tonight show house band. But he did an amazing job in his feature film debut here. He provided the right kind of archival footage. He interviewed the right kind of people and Summer of Soul is probably my favorite documentary of 2021 so far.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the films that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into a spoken word preview of movies that are coming either out in theaters or out on streaming. And for this coming weekend, the weekend of July 9th through July 11th, 2021, there is only one new film that I'm told is being released in theaters nationwide. That film is going to be Black Widow, which is rated PG-13, and it is a film about Natasha Romanoff in her quest between the films Civil War and Infinity War. Now, the film, uh, the Civil War film is Captain America Civil War, in which C- Scarlett Johansson starred as Natasha Romanoff slash Black Widow. Infinity War is the first, um, well, it's the third Avengers film, but it's, it's the first of a part two series, which ends with the movie Endgame, the latter of which became the highest grossing film of all time and not for no good reason, but infinity war I thought was actually better than Endgame, but just slightly better. But black widow is a bit of a comeback for Marvel studios because black widow was supposed to be released in theaters last year. And we all know why it didn't get released in theaters, but Scarlett Johansson comes back as black widow and I'm going to spoil why I'm surprised they made a Black Widow film, but it's kind of a prequel to uh, several of the later Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. But co-starring in Black Widow is Academy Award nominee Florence Pugh, David Harbour, and Academy Award nominee Rachel Weisz. So we've got a great cast of really great actors in this film. I can guarantee you Black Widow is a film that I will be seeing for you, and I will review it for you on next week's show. So that is the only film that's being released theatrically. So I'm going to get into movies that are going to be released on streaming platforms, and I will begin with Netflix. So on Netflix, uh, for the week of July 5th through July 9th, there are a few original films that are going to be premiering on the platform. The first movie I'm going to highlight will be premiering on the platform on Wednesday, July 7th. And amongst the um, various series that are also going to be premiering, there's one film that's called Major Grom, Plague Doctor. And yeah, Plague Doctor is a film that might hit a little too close to home considering we went through a pandemic that was kind of like a plague, but probably didn't kill as many people as the plague did. But this is a film that is a foreign film. It's directed by Oleg Trofim, and it sounds like it is a Russian film or an Eastern European film. I'm trying to get some perspective on what country in which this film was released. I'm I'm probably going to say Bulgaria, but I'm not entirely sure about that. But it's a movie about a police major by the name of Igor Grom 
who is known throughout St. Petersburg, so I assume maybe it's a Russian film, for his penetrative character and irreconcilable attitude towards criminals of all stripes. But everything changes dramatically with the appearance of a person in the mask of the plague doctor. This sounds like Poirot on steroids. It really does. I'd be interested to see this film. I'm not entirely guaranteeing that I will see the film, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. So moving on to Thursday, July 8th, there is a Netflix original that is a documentary. It's called Elise Matsunaga, which sounds like a Japanese name, and its subtitle is Once Upon a Crime. So let me see. I don't know the the name of Elise Matsunaga, but let me look her up as we are speaking and as I am as I am stalling for you right now. But this looks like a Spanish film even though Matsunaga sounds like a Japanese last name. It might be, but it's actually a Brazilian film and the star of the film is, well, it's a documentary. But anyway, it's a crime that shocked Brazil. Uh, Elise Matsunaga shot and dismembered her rich husband. Featuring her first interview, this docuseries dives deep into the case. As I was reading that description of the movie for you, I got chills. So I'm going to seek out this film. This seems like a film I can't miss. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. So moving on to Friday, July 9th on Netflix. There are a couple of original films that are going to be premiering on the platform. One of them is called Fear Street Part 2, 1978. Now, I know Fear Street as the series of books for teens that Arl Stein wrote... Um, simultaneously along with the Goosebumps books. Goosebumps was a lot more popular than Fear Street, but I do actually remember seeing um, Fear Street, or rather reading a few Fear Street books when I was 11 or 12. But this is... I'm I'm trying to see if this is the Fear Street that is based on the books written by R.L. Stein, and it is. Yeah, So Fear Street Part 1 is also a Netflix original, but this is a film trilogy event. The original Fear Street took place in 1994, which was around the time I read some of those Fear Street books. Part 2 takes place in 1978. And in this um, second of three movies, school's out for summer and the activities at Camp Nightwing are about to begin. But when another shady cider is possessed with the urge to kill, the fun in the sun be- the fun in the sun becomes a gruesome fight for survival. Sounds interesting, but I probably won't see this film until I see the first Fear Street movie that takes place in 1994. But one film I might see is one that is a Netflix original. It's called How I Became a Superhero. This is very risky for this film to come out at the same time as Black Widow. But, again, it's coming out on Netflix, so it's not like it's going to lose box office receipts. 
But this is a film that looks like it is a foreign film. It's directed by a man by the name of Douglas Atal. And I don't know where he's from. The websites aren't giving me enough information. But it's about uh, superheroes who have assimilated into Parisian society. So it takes place in France. But a new drug gives superpowers to mere mortals. I have seen a couple of films that are like this, but it sounds like an interesting concept, and I will see it and I'll let you know what I think. Another film that's coming out on Netflix that is a Netflix original, this is on Friday, July 9th, is one that is called Last Summer. And let me see what I can find about it. IMDb isn't telling me very much because it, it's populating my uh, search with I know what you did last summer and I still know what you did last summer. So I can't tell you very much about that film right now. So moving on from Netflix, let's see what is premiering on other streaming platforms, beginning with Amazon Prime. Well, there was one film that debuted on Amazon Prime on Friday, July 2nd, and it's called The Tomorrow War. And this is a film that I know was probably intended to be released into theaters, particularly because it stars Chris Pratt. And I have not seen this film yet, but I want to. It's directed by Chris McKay. And it's about a family man who is drafted to fight in a future war where the fate of humanity relies on his ability to confront the past. This kind of sounds like a Guardians of the Galaxy plot, but the third Guardians of the Galaxy movie is not actually coming out in theaters until 2023. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news there. It probably would have come out sooner had it not been for the pandemic, but uh, as I said, Chris Pratt stars in this movie. A very beautiful woman by the name of Yvonne Strahovski stars in it. Some other familiar names include J.K. Simmons and Betty Gilpin, amongst others. But even though I didn't get a chance to see this film for you for this show, I'm going to make it a priority to see this film for next week's show, and I'll let you know what I think then. But unfortunately, that is the only Amazon original that's going to be premiering on the platform on Amazon Prime for the week of July 5th through July 9th. There are some other films and original series that are going to be making an appearance on the show, but again, no original movies. So with that said, I'm moving on to another streaming platform. This one, uh, let's see what's going on on Disney+. Plus On Friday, July 9th, Black Widow will be appearing on Disney Plus with Disney Plus Premier Access. So if you want to spend $30 to see Black Widow, you can. Again, try to practice good social distancing techniques if you have not fully been vaccinated. But other than that, it doesn't look like there are any Disney Plus originals that will be premiering at least um, movies that will be premiering on the platform for that week, so we'll move on. On HBO Max, it's very hard to differentiate between the HBO Max um, movies that (laughs) premiere on the platform versus ones that are originals, and it doesn't look like 
there are many originals that will be premiering the week of July 4th through July 9th. There are some Max originals that are TV series, including a Gossip Girl reboot. Kind of interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that that film, uh, that series needed a reboot, but I guess there was a demand for it. But no, no original films on HBO Max, I am sorry to say. However, well, I'm going to get into movies that will be appearing on HBO Max later. On Hulu, there are a number of films that are going to be premiering. For instance, well, I just told you about the Summer of Soul documentary that's on Hulu right now. I highly recommend it. Also, a, a movie appeared on Hulu that I did not get to see last year, mainly because it was released only in theaters and not on streaming. And that movie was Bill and Ted Face the Music. I'm very curious to see that because I loved the original Bill and Ted movies, but I also told you that I'm reluctant to see such characters that were in their teens and 20s when that when those first two movies came out, and now they're in their 50s. Granted, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter look really good for guys in their 50s, but yeah, when I want to see these slackers in their 50s, I don't exactly know. But Bill and Ted Face the Music is on Hulu. Will I review it for you for your next for the that? Will I review it for you for next week's show? I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence about it because it's not exactly a new film, and I try to review only new films for this show, but I'm not necessarily against the idea of reviewing it for you for this show. But anyway, on uh, this week, uh, July 4th through July 9th, there are no Hulu original movies, but there are a couple of films that are premiering on the platform. One of them is a film that I missed that's called Barb and Star Go to Visit Del Mar. This is a film that stars uh, Kristen Wiig and uh, Annie Momolo, both of whom wrote the screenplay, the Academy Award nominated screenplay for Bridesmaids. And it's about lifelong friends, Barb and Star, who embark on the adventure of a lifetime when they decide to leave their small Midwestern town for the first time ever, which sounds particularly interesting. The movie also co-stars Jamie Dornan, who is not one of my favorite actors, and Damon Wayans Jr., who I think is a very underrated actor. So this film premiered in theaters in February, and I didn't go to see it because I was very reluctant to go to theaters because I had not even been partially vaccinated yet, let alone fully vaccinated. But I do think I'll play a little bit of game of catch up and try to see Barb and Star go to visit Del Mar for you next week, or at least I will make a point to see it and review it for you on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.